I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Thank you for coming back to join us to continue the conversation with the uh, amazing, very intelligent, highly knowledgeable Azim Azar. Azim is on a mission to explain how our societies and way of life are changing as a result of the exponential growth of technology. He wants to bring together that field of technology and innovation and business, which some of us might not be fully aware of, and the fields of society and policy and how those two together can help us build a better future. If you haven't heard the first part of this conversation, please go back and listen to it. It's very eye-opening around the nature of growth and how we got to where we are today as humans with the technology that we've developed. Going forward, we'll look more a little more into the future of where we're going. Azim is a is the writer behind the, the Exponential View, which is the basically the United Kingdom's largest platform for in-depth tech analysis, has more than 200,000 viewers or readers from across the world. He is the host of the Harvard Business Review distributed podcast, which is Exponential View. It's in the top 10 frequently in the UK, top 50 in the US, with guests that are leaders in technology and economics and innovation and culture and so on. Azim is also recently the author of The Exponential. The book is called The Exponential in the UK. It's called The Exponential Age in the US and uh, basically is out there to remind us that the world is changing and that we probably need to become aware. So let's now go back to the conversation and turn to the future and see how the world is changing and how that impacts on our lives. It's fascinating, really, because if you look back at our life 50 years ago and 500 years ago and then five years ago and five years from now, Every time you look back, you go like, how on earth did they live 500 years ago, right? And then, you know, that would be said by the people 50 years ago and the people five years ago would go like, my right. grandma, oh, my poor grandma, how did they live, right? And, yes. and, and there's, it seems to be endless in an interesting way that we're unable to imagine what can happen next. And there is so much good that can happen. I, I love the way you position it. Sometimes a lot of people will say, we don't need more technology. Yes, you don't need more uses of technology. You do, by the way, but you don't. You may not feel that you need more uses of technology, but you have so much room to do the same that you're doing today better, more efficient, safer for the planet, more equitable, accessible to people, and so on. So there is a lot of good that can come out of this. I do, however, want to talk about the dystopian side of this. I mean, in a very interesting way, life is not bad at all. It's a bit like saying we have a Ferrari that's running 300 kilometers an hour, but then we're going to make another one that's going to be able to do 320. Like, right. is that any good? Do we need 320? Did we ever need 300? Was five kilometers an hour that we walked too bad? I mean, could we have gone to 50 and been satisfied? First of all, where is the line? When do we think, why is humanity constantly striving to change what it has. And where is the line? When do we say, okay, that's great. 
let's just keep it that way. You know, it's such a great question. And I think a large part of this is culturally relevant. It depends on where we are in whatever part of the world. I grew up in Zambia, in sub-Saharan Africa, and life was fine in the UK at the time, but a very large number of Zambian women lost their children before the child was one or before the child was five. And that is as true today as it was Interesting you point. know, 45 years ago, right? Interesting point. And we're not fixing that with technology, are we? In a sense, we have the means through the technology. What we don't have is the incentives through the, the, the politics uh, to, to, to tackle that. And I think the, you know, the underlying driver, though, for a lot of this is, and why I think it's hard to imagine a a scenario of degrowth and us all starting to live in the countryside and going back is because human ambition is what takes people to the city where it's more technocratic and things are faster moving. However bad the conditions are in the city, the reason people from the countryside move there is because they're worse in the countryside. And that's been true for since the first cities from 10,000 years ago. And so there is this natural pull. And we I think, start to develop new values and new expectations. Of course, we were satisfied at five kilometers or four kilometers an hour walking. But when we could move at 100 and travel further and choose our mate from a much wider pool, we look back at those people who could only walk at three kilometers an hour and say, look, they had to marry their cousin because they had no choice. And we say, well, that's not, we have more choice now. And, that, and that's, that's a better thing. And our values around that have started to, to change. I think the thing that we need to be a bit careful of, and what I love about your, your kind of attitude of, of slow and more considered, is that this interaction of technology and society is a little bit like a nuclear reactor. And nuclear reactors work really well when you put boron rods into them mm -hmm. to moderate the rate of fission. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is Mo saying, listen, guys, let's slow. Let's be a bit more considered. You get a great nuclear reactor. Right. If you like a Silicon Valley VC, pull those rods out as fast as you can, you get a runaway reaction. And I think the, the balance that we have to find is to recognize that we've got to find ways of moderating and regulating this to get its fundamental benefits. And I think there is a risk that we end up in a dystopia that what's something that looks like a dystopia to us if we ended up there for those people who lived it it would just be their lived experience just as it was for the, the, the medieval <laughs> serfs on the farm so right? interesting yeah could they judge it or not right but i think <clears throat> we have a moral choice today to sit and say well what do we want that future to to look like and how do we draw the lines from here to one that we feel better about and i think we can do that by asking the types of questions that you ask of people's individual behavior and of the technology because those are the questions that are the you know the boron rods in the reactor slowing things down i mean in a very interesting way i i have to say and i'm a very serious geek like this is my life i create a lot of that stuff that it's starting to be a little too fast even for me it's too demanding even for me, right? I mean, I answer at least a few hundred messages a day, right? Right. Uh, between WhatsApp and what I get on Instagram and what I get on Facebook and what I get from my work and email and at least. Right. And that's extremely efficient as compared to my early IBM days when we had profs, that was the IBM system, email system. And on profs, you know, you come to work at 8 a.m. and you're like 
did I get any email today? Oh, I have two emails, right? And you spend between 8 and 10 a.m. answering those emails so meticulously because it's an important thing. Your boss might see it someday. And uh, today, where is the line? I love the idea that you're saying we can build the future, but I don't think... I think this, the future is being built organically and then we're living it. And I'm actually curious if there is any way at all we could stop and say, hold on, hold on. I want a future that looks like this. I want a phone that does that. And it's becoming really, I think we're reaching the biological limit of humans to keep up. Uh, certainly of humans in their late 40s, Mo. I mean, I struggle to, <laughs> to keep up as well. Don't even, you know, don't talk to me about, uh, you know, TikTok or the latest. Oh, yeah, uh, I you give know, up. Yeah, of course. Crypto uh, thing. So I, I think there is a way and it's driven by it's driven by values and an explanation of what matters. The 1971 launch of the Intel 4004 was this sort of meaningful step in the IT industry. It was a, this very important packaged microprocessor. It also coincided with the, the work of Milton Friedman, mm -hmm. who was the economist who said, the purpose of a corporation is to make profits for its shareholders so long as it plays by the rules of the game. And Friedman kicked off a new economic consensus around monetarism, around deregulation, around the fact that the market more than anything else was really, really important. And we saw that with Reagan and with Margaret Thatcher in the UK, and it turned into what was called the Washington Consensus. And that was a values-driven exercise. Correct. And at the same sort of time, a guy called Garrett Hardin uh, wrote a paper called The Tragedy of the Commons, where he said, if you have shared resources like a green where animals can graze in a village, it will be overgrazed because no one has any incentives not to take as much as they can. So you essentially should turn it into a market or force the state to look after it. And these ideas that the state was not much good, but the market was excellent, that companies should be profit-seeking, heat-seeking missiles, that commons don't exist or would be mismanaged, they guide the way in which we think about our economies and the way in which politicians think about them and what we then emphasize. Mm. And so I think we can come up with different values that will create a different emphasis on what companies choose to prioritize and what we as consumers choose to ask of them. And, you know, I come up with three values in my book. One is the idea of commonality in the collective, so tackling hard in head on and saying the Wikipedia, which is a commons, and the internet, whose protocols are a commons, is absolute evidence proof that commons can be incredibly valuable and self-managing and not get destroyed. And we should have much more of them for a number of reasons I go into the book about. The second is the idea that we need to bake flexibility into our systems, whether they're our education systems or our economic systems or our products, because in uncertain times, you don't want anything that's too rigid. And then the third principle is the idea of resilience, which is that, again, in uncertain times, you need to make sure you, can, you have shock absorbers. Uh, and the kind of shock absorbers that a rally car has when it's driving across dirt track and hills are very different to the shock absorbers that mm -hmm. a Formula One car has on a flat racetrack. And our economies are designed with the shock absorbers of a Formula One car because we've assumed neoliberalism and the Washington consensus and global capitalism. 
So I think you come up with new values. I have three, CFR, collectivism, flexibility, resilience, and that starts to send a different signal through the economy so people value things differently. Other people have other ideas. Greta Thunberg's idea obviously has taken off. There's a wonderful woman you should get on your show called Kate Rayworth, who has an idea called the donut economics, the idea that your economy needs to live within a circular limit. And these are, but her ideas also are value driven. And so I don't think it's about necessarily saying we shouldn't make the iPhone 14. It's about saying that we start to rethink what matters, what we have to, what the design principles are, and that then gets transmitted to the system, and we can apply pressure in that way in a kind of co more coherent, more cogent way. Can we stay on the topic of values for a, for a minute? Yeah. As you know, when I wrote Scary Smart, I have to say my favorite chapter of the book is a chapter I call the future of ethics. Right. Right. And I write, I write for myself. I don't write for others. So when we said we were going to meet, that topic really was the one topic I said I wanted to talk to Azim about. And the idea in my mind is that it's quite complicated and quite even difficult for me to resolve. Like I know what the issues are. Let's take machine intelligence, artificial intelligence in general, yeah. right? And just imagine a world where there is some kind of a digital being that is doing things on our behalf and try to apply any of what we understand about law and order and discrimination and equality and, you know, all of those things to a machine, right? And the interaction between us and a machine and what does that machine, there is that argument around how much of a real being that machine is. And so can we go a little bit, have you given some thought to that, the idea of ethics of the future? Uh, yeah, I have thought, I'm really lucky. I sit as a trustee on a group called the Ada Lovelace Institute, which is an ethics research group looking specifically at machine intelligence and data. And so I'm lucky to hear smart people talk about this. You know, I, I think the where there's a real opportunity here is... There is large parts of the economy that is really complicated, a little bit mundane, and is currently handled by humans because machines can't do it. And as it gets progressively more complicated, that work gets less and less interesting. And I think there's a, you know, one of the things that we might be able to do in the further future is actually have machines, in a sense, run lots of the infrastructure that we currently have to worry about. And you can imagine us determining very, very tightly what they can and can't do. This idea of the smart contract on the blockchain, which is very tightly defined, can only execute what it wants to execute. And if we could automate many, many aspects of the back end of the global economy, I think what you do is you actually free up a lot of resources and you can put make those resources a kind of commons resource the equivalent of sunlight or clean air for us to all enjoy and i'm quite excited about that that isn't what people might think of as machine intelligence but it is about the idea of widespread slightly dumb machines acting in concert to do something that humans could otherwise do and that's pretty exciting. I mean, there are also all the other issues around the fact that we want to put these tools into use in our everyday and we want to stick, you know, a robot between you and your doctor or you and your lawyer, uh, which raises all sorts of other types of questions. I agree. I think, I think there are so many optimistic scenarios, but there are so many, 
so much we need to do to get there. Like, so take those robotics. There is the very famous example that's repeated across the internet all the time about a self-driving car having to make a decision. And if it has no choice but to kill one of two humans, one is an old lady and the other is a, a young girl, right? Those kinds of questions, again, because of the exponential rate of growth, have not been fully addressed. And because of the stupidity of humanity, are going to take ages to agree. But yet the technology advances, the technology is marching on. You know, they are, they're even more subtle and more pernicious and more pervasive effects than the, the trolley problem, right, with the self-driving cars. There is, you know, if we look at things like what are called language models, we've made tremendous progress in the last five years at getting, building machine learning systems, which are essentially software machines that can write in natural language, natural English or French or Chinese or Urdu or Farsi. And, you know, they don't do a particularly brilliant job. You wouldn't replace your own editing for it, but they are quite powerful. And as someone who's been following the field, that field for 20 years, I'm really impressed with where we've got to. Oh, yeah. The way they work, though, is they work by sucking in enormous volumes of text, billions and billions of pages of text. And the machines themselves are incredibly complicated. So they're measured in things like layers, and one measure is called parameters. And a recent version of these has got more than one trillion parameters. So if you remember the graphic equalizer that you may have had when you were a teenager, it had maybe five little sliders to change frequencies. These transformer models have like a trillion sliders, a trillion dials that you can change. Can you imagine, yeah. They're incredibly complicated machines and you can't look inside them. Now, you have a bunch of problems there. The first is they're trained on the text they're given. Yeah. That includes 4chan and 8chan and it includes pro-ISIS tweets and messages on Facebook. It also includes every academic paper that's publicly available. And that means that we're looking back into the annals of history and freezing that and saying, this is the way of the world. There have been 46 American presidents, all American presidents are men. That is the kind of sort of naive extrapolation. So they get their old data and they reflect the world as it was. They're put in a machine that no human can inspect they're turned into software that can be accessed by anyone billions of times a day in a hundred million different applications. And we just don't know actually how they perform, when they'll perform well, when they'll perform badly, when they'll construct, forget the word bias, right? Spew Nazi ideas into a legal document. And the cost of those is coming down and down and down with every day because of the exponential age. So that is a pervasive, pernicious and difficult problem oh, yeah. that in just six years has gone from being a lab experiment in one university to being used everywhere across the internet. And we have no discipline. This is lunacy. It. This absolute lunacy. I mean, when you really think about I me, mean, I, when I left Google X 2018, I was questioning myself saying, do we need a 320 kilometers Ferrari 
that will provide that kind of complexity to the world. The truth is exactly what you said. Nobody knows how to tune it. If we actually knew how to tune it, it will take us you know, a few years to tune the trillion parameters by a team of a thousand people. And then the machine will change them in a microsecond once again, because it will look at data. And, and the reality is the outcomes of this, things like filter bubbles, the reality that this machine took our past or not even the best of our past, right? Took a mix of the worst of humanity and the best of humanity, formulated a view of the world, and then took that view of the world and not only extrapolated it forward, but influenced every single one of us. Because now, take a machine like Twitter. What I see on Twitter is not the whole world, even though it feels like it. It is the view of the world that is more and more conformative to my views of the past. So it's very straightforward. If I'm on Instagram and I see a reel that I don't like and I swipe through it, Instagram goes like, he doesn't like that stuff. Let's not show him any more of this. So I'm creating this own little bubble that is biased by the machine that is completely controlling how I will view my world now and in the future just for the extra 20 miles an hour. Well, because these things were toys and they have turned from toys to being cancer drugs. (laughs) And we have rules around cancer drugs, right? We have rules around, in every state in the US, apart from New Hampshire, we have rules around seatbelts. We recognize that there are machines and technologies that we produce, whether it's pharmaceuticals or aircraft or power stations, that have to be tested according to some standards. And they have to live up to those standards. And if they don't, liability falls on those who created them or produced them or own them. And, you know, the recently when Boeing had these problems with the 737 MAX, which ended up with hundreds of people dying, the investigation started to demonstrate that the FAA, the Federal Aviation Authority Administration, pardon me, had started to hand over a lot of the certification of the aircraft to the manufacturer themselves. And that was one reason why these planes ended up getting certified in that way. So the fact that we build these incredibly powerful technologies in the traditional tech industry, but we don't have any obligation, legal, societal, social obligation of there to ensure that they work well, to ensure that we are liable if they have bad effects, is the biggest get out of jail card that almost any industry has ever had. And it's something that I think what we have to actually do is is tackle that and tackle that in lots of different ways, right? Because we know what it is to check whether a seatbelt is working properly to the specification. When we look at a machine like Twitter or Instagram's recommendations, we still have to do the academic work to understand what does good look like here, right? And we have to find a way of agreeing to that. And then we have to find a way of monitoring whether it is doing what it ought to be doing. And that process, I think, has to start happening really quickly. Otherwise, these machines will run amok. Can I ask, even if we figure that out, can we enforce it? I mean, the truth is, AI written by Google can be regulated. But we both know that if you and I spent a weekend together, you know, somewhere off the world and wrote a piece of code, we could probably release an AI out there that would grow and develop and it's hosted on Google Cloud with Kubernetes and running and everything will be fine, right? Yeah. And we would never even launch it as a commercial product. Nobody will even know that it exists. 
There is really no, I mean, the two biggest interests, I'm always positive, by the way, I think everyone should understand, I'm, just, I'm looking for answers, but I actually really believe we're building a, a utopia, maybe with a few uh, hiccups on the way. But uh, the idea here, I mean, I, I always talk about AI specifically, which mm-hmm. is completely unregulatable, right? And uh, CRISPR, CRISPR with gene right. editing, right? Being open sourced, like, what are we talking about? Like anyone can build a, a new kind of mouse and release it in the in the wild. And and those kinds of technologies now are are getting us into a new age that I have to say humanity is not prepared for. No, it's not prepared. And then the question is, what do you do? And I think about CRISPR and we had um, the Chinese scientist, Hei, who a few years ago, CRISPR edited these twins and can you believe we're saying that a scientist crispr edited twins like yeah yeah the, the world we're living in <laughs> but the the you know the fascinating thing is that the shock that came out from that and was really manifest and he he came under a lot of criticism and you know a lot of the way in which you moderate behaviors like this is through professional codes of conduct and ethics it's not just through laws and enforcement mm-hmm. uh, you know you need you need the full spectrum i don't know if you like playing soccer or watch it at all mo but you need a striker you need midfielders you need yes. defenders you need wingers you need a goalkeeper you can't just put 11 messies on the pitch and hope you'll win a game yeah uh, although that would be amazing uh, we should clone <laughs> be messi <laughs> yeah. okay so that weekend forget the ai let's use crispr to clone messi um <laughs> And likewise, I think tackling these things, we need to ensure that these standards exist on the AI front as different to CRISPR. It's super cheap because Kubernetes is easier to get a hold of than taking a baby to term and growing it to the age of 15, at least for now. So there is a proliferation of these technologies and it's been so obvious when it comes to botnets and misinformation and disinformation on on social networks. You know, many of the most damaging botnets were run out of by sort of teenage criminal gangs run out of Eastern Europe, right? And often using very, very basic technology. We're not talking about AI here, we're talking about PHP. And that's, you know, one of the simplest programming languages in the world. So I think the thing that we have to be able to do is like on the one hand, building this resilience is to start to build professional standards that haven't existed in the traditional technology industry about what we will and won't do, what is good and less acceptable behavior. I think we can also start to look at the core infrastructure providers, because at the end of the day, there are only really three cloud providers who matter, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft, Microsoft, right? And start to say, listen, you've got an infrastructural role if you were if you were a landlord owning a block of an apartment block and someone had a crack dead in there you know you might tell us about it the authorities and we can start to ask them and create requirements and expectations on them when they have these infrastructural positions but then we get into the other side of the problem which is that politics will play a part and For example, sex workers on the internet are often targeted by the payment infrastructure platforms. And they'll say, listen, you can't accept PayPal if you're going to be camming. Now, we can have our own opinions about 
scamming, but certainly if you read what sex workers, unions and collectives say about this, they say, we can't earn a living because we are cut out of the infrastructure. So the challenge I think here, and it's a really thorny, difficult one, is we need many, many different players on this field. We also have to recognise that what might be deemed acceptable by a given government may be too stringent and may be too difficult. And you certainly start to see it when you think about, you know, the question of encryption. And that's where you need a societal conversation. But I think the starting point is to say, look, the traditional technology industry is not a special case where we don't ask for regulation, we don't ask for stress tests, we don't ask for prudence and probity. We ask this for every other industry. I mean, we even ask it of bankers. So why not software developers? I think that's a, a, a great place to to focus. I think there is a lot of need there. I'm aware I'm taking a lot of your time. I love okay. the conversation. I have two more questions very, okay, very sure. quickly. One, okay. one is artificial intelligence, in my view, is not just another machine. Mm-hmm. It is a form of being that has a bit of, of awareness, a lot of awareness, actually more aware than we are, a lot of intelligence, obviously, becoming more intelligent than we are. It has autonomy, it can make decisions, it has some kind of a reproductive system, which I think most people don't realize is that AI is writing AI. All of Google's systems are actually writing Google systems. And it seems to me that it's no longer a machine, it's more a form of a sentient being. But most of the talk that is about AI tries to dismiss that. You know, oh, AI is never going to be creative. It's never going to write music. It's never going to write poetry. You know, it doesn't have consciousness. It doesn't have ethics. What is your stand on this? Well, I think the these are no doubt really, really powerful devices, things, entities that we see we see today. I mean, my starting point is that humans are clearly also machines. We're very complicated. Our brains are very complicated. We keep discovering they're more complicated uh, with every advancement in, in imaging technology. But there's nothing that's inherently unengineerable about the way in which we are structured. In other words, I think there is one substance. It is physical. It is governed by the natural sciences. And there's no need to call on the supernatural spirits to explain what we are. Whatever there is emerges from us. And from that starting point, I can therefore believe that other machines, creatures can exist and can start to exhibit the things that we exhibit, like awareness and and consciousness. And you had that stunning, stunning podcast on the octopus. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that was just amazing, right? And so so we recognise that. So I believe in in the theory, and I also see the power of the machines that we are building in in AI. But I don't think they are yet close to having any kind of agency or quality that we would associate with sort of higher order beings like, like dogs or octopuses or us. But I don't have a theoretical objection to us not getting there. I just don't think we're as far along perhaps as, as some people think we are. Yeah. But with exponential view, would we ever? You know, even on the, on the chessboard with the doubling of sand, the human brain is 
80 billion neurons, right? And it's trillions of connections. It's really, really, really complicated. So even with an exponential process, it takes you some time to get there. I think there's something else as well, because we can't really define consciousness at the moment. I mean, that's still a point in argument. <laughs> and we don't understand the engineering. So we know that if you don't understand the engineering and you can't define the thing, it was the process of evolution about three billion years from the first life forms to us that got us here. So if we don't know how to build what we're building and we're trying to run this random process with kind of computers, I think it'll take some time to get there. You know, maybe not three billion years, but certainly doesn't feel like it's three or 30 years, even at an exponential time, just because the scale is so big. So I'm sanguine about that. I'm really glad for the consciousness scientists and I'm super glad for the neuro neuroscientists and the AI researchers doing the deep, deep, deep hard work. But I'm more concerned about AI, about the, the sort of opportunities and benefits it can bring today and the harms that it is causing uh, today. Great. So which takes me to my last question in one word, putting it all together, future is better or worse? Oh, better. Good. Yes, better. I love that. I think it will be better for sure. Mm. I think we have a role to play. You state the role as a role of regulation and, you know, responsibility and professional design of a different approach and so on and so forth. I love that. I, I believe it's absolutely needed. I also think we as humans, which you spoke about as well, have a very, very important role to play to shape technology, not to take technology, to be able to engage in terms of what we want, not to just use what we're given. And I think that's a very, very powerful view. Azim, I just cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time and your generosity and your immense knowledge. I'm very, very grateful that you came. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. My pleasure, Mo. And I'm really looking forward to having you on my podcast as well. I know. I know. Yeah, I know. That'll be I'm great. looking forward to that. I hope then we talk about technology and consciousness and technology and humanity. I think that's a, an interesting side of things, but I will go anywhere and it will be a fun conversation again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For all of you listening, I'm, I'm very grateful for your time. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have the opportunity to spend so much time talking to such an amazing uh, person, Azim Azar. I know that you have enjoyed this conversation, so tell others about it. And uh, like we both real techies and geeks told you during this conversation, regardless of how busy you are today, there's always a bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.